This is Reengineering the Business of Healthcare. Ideas, trends, and visions of a better healthcare system for everyone. Here's Dr. Matthew Kalinsky. Welcome back to the conclusion of my chat with Sean Weiss, aka The Compliance Guy. Sean is a partner and vice president of compliance at Doctors Management, a full-scale practice management and regulatory consultancy. In part one, we learned how Sean became the compliance guy, the effects of COVID on the industry, and his thoughts on medical regulations. Sean, as you know, my mission and this podcast is all about re-engineering the business of healthcare. And if I were to bestow you with the power to fix the system, what would you do first? Here's how I think you begin with the re-engineering of the system. You ready for this? It's going to be pretty radical. I love radical. I have some radical ideas myself. So let's see well, if yours let, matches mine. <laughs> let, let's, yeah, let's see. Here's how you fix it. Every single congressperson in the upper and lower chambers in D.C. should be forced to go on to Medicaid with their family. That would solve it overnight. <laughs> it would solve it overnight because they would get to experience just what a disaster Medicaid is and what it means not to have access to quality care. And, and the thing that drives me nuts is the fact that the underinsured and the uninsured are paying retail prices for healthcare. Yes. The people who can least afford it are paying retail price for healthcare. Yeah. While others who are gainfully employed or are employed with a company that offers healthcare are paying lower prices because of negotiated amounts. And that's where I think price transparency is going to be so critical. And family max contributions, you know, that also yeah. plays a role too. It does. Yeah. I like your, uh, it's not as extreme. I was expecting something worse, but I do agree. <laughs> I oh, do I, agree I, that I've got other it. ideas. I do have other <laughs> ideas. You know, from a process standpoint, I just can't help but start thinking is what happens if the money that's contributing on behalf of the insurance premium, whether that's uh, an employer, whether that's an employee, whether that's a Medicaid contribution to the, the health insurance plan, what happens if we changed who controlled the money to benefit the system overall? When, when we have state divided insurance plans and there's a CEO for every state for Blue Cross or you, whatever company you name uh, in every state or the leadership component, you know, how much of that money is being used to just be pushed around from division to division just to cover overhead of a third party? Could that money be used better? I think that there's enough money in the system to provide excellent care and to provide great reimbursements and actually reduce the cost of care. It's just a matter of how we do the cash flow analysis and whose pockets it's going into from this standpoint. Yeah, I don't disagree with you at all. You know, the problem that you have with the private insurance companies, right? To your point, the blues, the sigmas, the Aetna's, the Uniteds. The problem is they're all beholden to the shareholders. You know, when you have middle managers at Blue Cross Blue Shield getting million dollar bonuses yes. every year. Yep. That's a broken system. Yeah. You know, 85 cents of every dollar, and it may even be a little bit higher than that now, but 85 cents of every dollar paid on a premium to an insurance company doesn't go towards healthcare. It goes towards the administrative crap. Yep. And I just wonder if the, if the shareholders were the patients, meaning 
if in a community-based uh, hospital or hospital mm -hmm. organization, if the members uh, were shareholders and they paid their dues to the hospital that they're getting their care from, and let's say you do exercise and you are healthy and you maintain a good diet and you go in for your checkup, maybe your you know directly affects your premium. But also, if the hospital does well, if the hospital doesn't need to order a bazillion CT scans every time you go in with a broken, you know, with a shortness of breath, let's say we do a CT scan on everybody who comes in with shortness of breath practically, you know, if we could just save a little bit there and do reasonable primary care analysis, you know, the hospitals could potentially uh, reduce the cost of healthcare. And I think that if we created a system where the patients were integrally involved as a shareholder, part of their dues in the membership process, and the providers were part of that, I think there'd be an incentive to say, hey, you did great. You're staying healthy. Here's additional like um, distribution, if you will, <laughs> for, for maintaining yeah. a healthy lifestyle. The, but the money would stay in the hospital. It's controlling its own cash flow. I think the regulation could still be there to make sure that providers themselves are doing best practice of care, but it shouldn't really be tied with the revenue source. It should be separate. Yeah, I get exactly where you're going with that. And, you know, that was part of the whole advent of MACRA and MIPS, right? You know, for outcomes and to, you know, provide bonuses to hospitals that had lower yeah, readmission it's, rates. And it's still lower sitting within a broken system. That's it, the problem. It, it is. Somebody else is still controlling those. But you know why? You have two aspects of medicine. You have the business of medicine and you have the clinical aspect of medicine. Yes. And they don't always see eye to eye. 100% agree. When you have MBAs yes. making decisions on behalf of MDs, DOs, NPs, yes. and PAs, it diminishes the value of being a clinician. I mean, I preach that all the time in my, in my talks. Whenever I talk with a group, you know, I, most people don't realize that, that you know, in many cases, the MBAs, which are of a great education, but the problem is, is that they, they lack the patient care component, which is why we took that Hippocratic Oath, what, which is why we got into medicine to begin with. Yeah, they lack that compassion for humanity. It's about the bottom line. And I'm typically a nice person, but you know there are times where I'm brought into organizations and I'm put face-to-face -face with these MBAs, and we don't exactly, you know... It almost turns into like a cage match at UFC because for 25 years, I have advocated on behalf of physicians. I have advocated on behalf of physicians, you know, with the Senate Finance Committee. I've advocated to members of Congress. I just want to see regulations put in place that penalize those who break the rules intentionally. But I want to see a real due process for those providers who are hardworking, doing the right thing, and unfortunately, a mistake was made. You know, there's a reason why in the law there's a term called erroneous, right? Um, not every mistake is fraud. Not every mistake is criminal. And the future of healthcare is right now. And we need to be right now focusing on what can be done to put control back into the hands of the clinicians 
you know, it's really funny. The last thing that I'll say about this, the prohibition, which is the very first section of the Medicare statute, says that no government official shall have any authority over the practice of medicine. And it goes on and it gives a little bit more eloquent, you know, uh, background than what I'm saying. But what it, what it essentially says is no government employee shall dictate to a physician how to practice medicine. That's why we have something called the treating physician rule. And my argument in court all the time is, well, if that's the case, why are we here today? Yes. Why do I have individuals who are non-clinical telling my clinical professionals that the services they rendered were not medically necessary? I mean, help me understand why we're wasting taxpayer money today. I think we're really good at self-regulating amongst ourselves. The problem is that when it's, oh, well, the, the big government doesn't want you to do it that way. That's why we can't do this medicine or that's why we have to change it or, or this insurance company doesn't cover this. You know, when, when we're blaming it on someone else, it's really hard to self-regulate in terms of pro uh, providing the best care to the patients. I, you know, university hospitals are great from that standpoint. They have... You know, weekly teaching sessions. They talk about cases that go on. They talk about best practice and therapies and review. Like that's great. But in the in the private practice, which makes up what is it ninety percent of medical care, you know that type of self regulation doesn't happen because they rely on the quote unquote regulation by the government, uh, which is just you know it's it's I don't know what came first. I don't know how that happened. It was probably you know, some rules and whatnot. But I think what they did is they associated, oh, well, since the government, you know, since they were being audited and, and Medicare's taking back money, we have to follow those rules. They're the ones that determine the best practice. And I think, but part of it is my, my physician partners in the past, in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s gave up way too much control. You know, they should have gotten that education. They should have been at that table but I think they said, well, I, I just want to practice medicine. You can take the business of medicine and run with it. And they handed away those controls instead of sitting at the table defending for the rights of future physicians. And, and it's done us an injustice. And like you said, it's kind of crumbling the, the system moving forward. Uh, well, physicians have always been their own worst enemy. And I say that with the utmost respect. I, I love physicians. I do. But, you know, they get in their own way. And there's a lot of them that are, you know, completely disconnected from the operations, from the business of medicine until it impacts them either in their quality of life or in their pocketbook. Then they start stomping their feet and, and, and slamming their fist on the table, you know, wanting a seat at that table. And by then it's just too late. The real issue is Physicians need to advocate for themselves. Physicians need to be as aggressive on Capitol Hill, thinking that the American Medical Association is going to do that on their behalf or that their special specialty society, you know, depending on what special, because I work with some societies that are absolutely tremendous with their advocacy groups. But there are some that are just about, you know, getting CMEs and getting your dues. Mm -hmm. Until the American people stand up and say, enough is enough, and force Congress to ban big pharma lobbyists until we force Congress to ban the hospital association lobbyists, until we force Congress to ban the insurance company lobbyists who, you know, are 
look, have you ever thought about how is it possible that a congressperson who makes $174,000 a year turns out to be a millionaire in like 10 years? I mean, I mean, has anybody well, ever really stopped? It's the secret yeah. accounts they keep. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I just, I'm not, I'm not some radical conspiracy theorist kind of person. I'm genuinely a very middle of the road kind of thought process kind of person. I, I, I like to think that I'm rational and reasonable. But we're working in an unreasonable and an irrational industry. And we've got to force people to pay as much attention to our broken healthcare system as they are to social justice issues. And I'm not trying to diminish social justice issues because we got a lot of problems. But healthcare is the backbone of our country. Because if we don't have healthy people, we don't have a workforce. If we don't have healthy people, we don't have an economy. Healthcare really is the central nervous system for all other businesses. Well, employees, I mean, yeah. I mean, when you talk about the impact of a healthcare system or hospital in any community, you're talking hundreds or thousands of jobs and security and, and financial you know, income into the area and spending. You're absolutely right. It's the, it's the one thing that connects all the states you know, through and through, and it's one thing that every person in America needs. So from absolutely. A, from a structure standpoint, from a person standpoint, you couldn't agree more, which is funny that it's so separated by states, you know, from a Medicaid standpoint and regulation. I know. That's, that's what drives me insane. It's like an oxymoron right there. Yeah. It's crazy. So I'm sure you've had a lot of time to, to work with good systems and bad systems and good people and bad people. And, and you've seen a lot of, of, I'm sure, wonderful stories. But from your standpoint, what does it take to be compliant these days? Is it you know, is it something outrageous or is it just kind of keeping your nose clean from kind of where we are in, in 2021? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, the truth of the matter is, I think a lot of people try to overcomplicate compliance. You know, there's a lot of people out there that overcomplicate it because they believe the more complex they make things, the more money they can make off. For me, I have one rule of thumb. If you're going to create a compliance program, you have to create a culture of compliance, which means your compliance program is a living, breathing document. It's not some paperweight that sits on a shelf and collects dust that nobody knows what it says or where it lives or how it's administered throughout the organization. This is sort of, for me, when I look at compliance, it's your playbook, right? There's a document that was created, I think the first version of it, if I'm not mistaken, was in 2017. And it was issued by the Department of Justice Criminal Division, and it's titled Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Programs. And it's undergone a number of revisions over the last several years. Uh, the latest one, they kind of snuck under the, the radar, which didn't surprise me given the fact that it was the DOJ. Um, they snuck it under the radar in 2020, right in the middle of a pandemic, like in July. And I tell people all the time, you know, people are like, well, why is this such an important document? I mean, because it's a prosecutor's playbook. And it literally tells you all of the things that a prosecutor should review 
should consider and should use prior to a charging document, plea agreement, a deferred prosecution, anything like that. Believe me when I tell you, the government loves to put out these 100-page, 2,000-page documents. It's, it's unbelievable. This one is only 20 pages, and it's actually really well-written for a lay person to be able to pick it up and go, well, that makes sense. <laughs> so, again, I don't, I don't think compliance needs to be this overbearing, overburdensome, overcostly process that an organization, irrespective of its size, puts in place. I mean, my clients, I have clients that range from the one doctor practice all the way through, I think my largest client has more than 2,000 providers in their organization that I engage in their regulatory compliance for. You know, I use the KISS principle, keep it simple, stupid. And it works. Today, when we get, you know, when we get done, um, I actually have two interviews with the Office of Inspector General on behalf of two of my clients. I had two yesterday with the OIG. And when I talk to them and, and we start talking about, you know, what's going on in, in my provider's organizations, you know, I explain it to them and they're like, really, that's what you do? And I'm like, yeah, you know, we keep it simple. I mean, why am I going to pigeonhole myself into doing something that I can't do or I know I'm not going to do? And why am I going to overcomplicate something when the government doesn't always give clear direction on what their expectations are? And they do it for good reason because they want to be able to create a narrative to fit a potential violation. So I write things very general, very broad, and I keep it very gray so that in the event there's a problem, I can pivot. Yep. That's some good advice. When it comes to kind of outside of the um, regulatory in terms of compliance, you know, we think of Medicare, Medicaid, and kind of do no harm. Um, from a regulatory and compliance, but are there other things that we need to keep in mind as well that maybe a lot of providers aren't thinking about in terms of new cases, new trends, whether it's social media posts, whether it's how they're conducting uh, the business in a you know concierge type fashion, or, you know something that's outside of the norm. Anything that you've been seeing as potential trend that we should be aware of? Yeah, social media. I avoid social media like the plague. Except for because your podcast show, which can be found at thecompliancesguy.com. <laughs> that's, right. that's right. But my company manages that because they, they don't let me have any access to social media. I think they're afraid of what I'll say. Oh. Um, but, you know, social media is, is really, it's a driver in most cases of everything that's bad. Or real. I think it just brings out the real person inside more than bad. Well, yeah. You know, but, you know, I also tell people all the time, you have to be careful of what somebody tells you is real because people's oh, perception yeah. could become their reality very yeah. quickly, right? Yeah. Um, but, yeah, social media, you know, stop posting pictures of yourself with your staff at social events hammered. I don't want to go to a doctor who I just saw a post about them doing last jello night shots at, yeah last night yeah. at 2 a.m <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know i'm having open heart surgery today I, I i would have preferred not to have seen your jello shot experience um social media is is something that i always caution my providers if you want to do it keep your page private 
don't have it open to public consumption. The other thing is people don't realize that once you post something to the internet universe, it's there forever. Even if you delete it, there's still a digital footprint that exists. And if somebody is looking hard enough, they'll find it. There's a lot of things. Um, one of the big areas that people need to really be paying attention to is when your patients are requesting access to their medical records. Yes. Access to medical records is is critical. And if you deny patients the right to access or if you delay access beyond what is considered to be a reasonable period of time, the government is cracking down on this stuff. And just including, so we're clear. Including yeah. um, mental health, too. That's the biggest component that's hitting a lot of people right now is, yeah. is they get to access to their mental health records. And you know this, being a physician, you know, mental health records are held to a very different standard yes. than a, a general primary care medical record, right. right? And providers don't have to give a release of a patient's psychiatric record if they believe that the information contained within that medical record will cause harm to either the patient or to another person. They have a right to refuse that or to give a summary of the the medical information. And, you know, I've had um, cases where attorneys have filed motions, they filed subpoenas, and, you know, we file motions to quash those, and, you know, we ask for what's called an in-camera inspection, you know, which is basically where the judge reviews that documentation in private chambers and makes a decision. Well, uh, any last thoughts in terms of, I know this is a broad topic, but, you know, kind of where we're going in the future of compliance, anything we need to be aware of or anything that, uh, you know, any additional thoughts you'd like to add as we close out the show? Yeah, I think this one is is for me probably the most important. And, and I don't want people to take this as a political jab at anybody. But the current administration will continue to push regulations down the throats of healthcare workers. We've seen it in a number of instances already, and I'm not saying it's because it's the Democratic Party. Uh, the Republicans have their own issues. But Democrats love bigger government. They love more regulation. In the conversations that I just recently had with several Congress people, They've all said healthcare in 2022 is going to be front and center. Obviously, we're going into an election year, right, in 2022. Uh, so healthcare is going to be front and center. OSHA is going to be a huge topic because of the emergency temporary standards or what they call ETS yeah. that the current administration has tried to use OSHA to push out mandates for COVID vaccines for healthcare workers. There's going to be a huge push in the health insurance portability and accountability arena. They're realizing at the Office for Civil Rights that physician practices and, and smaller hospital networks aren't well prepared for preventing against unauthorized access to their medical records. Uh, they're not able to adequately prevent against a breach. And I honestly will tell you that I anticipate from everything that I'm seeing as somebody on the front lines of healthcare, uh, from a operations and a regulatory standpoint, we're in for a really rocky ride over the next 
probably 18 to 24 months. And I don't think things are going to get any easier. I think we're going to see more investigations. We're definitely going to see a, an increase and a ramp up in the audits that are taking place from the RACs, the UPICs, the MICs, the MACs, the SIUs from the commercial insurance companies, because they lost approximately 18 months during the pandemic from being able to audit providers. Yep. You know, I think a lot of providers have kind of relaxed a little bit. They've kind of gotten, I hate to use the term, you know, documentation lazy, but some of the audits that we've been doing, we've been seeing a lot of deficiencies. You know, we had new evaluation and management service guidelines that went into effect January of 2021, whereby physicians like yourself, Doc, you no longer have to do the bean counting of the history of present illness review of systems, past family history, examination. If you're doing E&M services in the office setting, now it's, it's based on time and complexity of medical decision-making, but it has to be in concert with medical necessity. But we're seeing a lot of doctors that aren't documenting yeah. to be able to justify the time. So sure, sure, sure. It's, it's going to be, it's gonna be a very interesting ride, and I don't expect things to slow down from a regulatory standpoint anytime soon. Well, that's good for you, but <laughs> hopefully it's not too damaging for the rest of us. <laughs> and I hope it's not, because like I said, you know, while, it, while it's something that keeps me employed, I would much rather see physicians get to see physicians and help restore people to an optimal level of function than to see them wasting their time on administrative nonsense. I couldn't agree with you more, Sean. That's why we're going to become fast friends in the future as we continue to help bring good, positive change to the healthcare and, and the business of medicine. <laughs> I look forward to the challenge and I look forward to our friendship continuing to grow, Doc. Thank you very much for coming on the show, and I hope you have a good rest of the day. All right. Take care. His name is Sean Weiss, a.k.a. The Compliance Guy. To connect with Sean or to listen to his podcast, go to thecompliance.guy.com. That's it for another episode of Reengineering the Business of Healthcare. If you enjoy the show, make sure you take a second to subscribe so you can automatically get my new shows when they drop. Also, if you have a minute, I'd love it if you left us a review so more folks like yourself can discover the show. I'll see you next time. Reengineering the Business of Healthcare is a production of Advantage Audio. To connect with Dr. Matthew Kalinsky and find out how you can achieve dramatic improvements in business performance, go to matthewkalinsky.com. <laughs>